Right, so today we're joined by Scott, who is a head coach and owner at Primal MMA. So today the plan is to have a little chat about overcoaching and undercoaching and maybe some things that go along with that. So first of all, thank you, Scott, for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, becoming a big fan of your uh, content. Appreciate it. Very good. So do you want to give us like a, a quick background and intro before we get into it? Uh, okay, I'll give you a fairly short version. I moved to the, U- the US about 15 years ago looking for a new hobby and outlet. I did some karate when I was younger back in Scotland. But I uh, walked into uh, Duke Rufus kickboxing gym over here and fell in love with the sport a little later. Um, I guess that's probably a good thing or a bad thing, whatever whatever the way I look at it. Um, competed at an amateur level for a couple of years and then had a couple of young sons and decided I was getting too old for this. Um, I always say you don't realize how young 30 is until you hit 40. Uh, so I stepped into coaching, and I've said before, had absolutely no business coaching. Uh, I was a complete fraud and imposter. But that uh, I could have went two ways. Two ways with that, I could have continued to do that, or, or really buckle down and, and try and try and actually learn the, the 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 disciplines and skills of coaching. Went back to college to do a degree in athletic development coaching, and fell down a few rabbit holes that we spoke about. Coming across Trevor Reagan's work, a couple of other guys in that area, and didn't realise how detailed and rich. The coaching space was so I'm, I'm still consider myself somewhat of a novice but I'm, I'm trying hard to, to catch up with you guys mm, that's fantastic so we, we probably would have gotten in touch originally with um we, we came across you on a talent equation podcast and you put out some very good content there and and particularly it, it was it was good for us because we've never we've been listening to that for a while now and, and kind of playing in that space of ecological dynamic and things like that uh, but we haven't really seen the martial arts scene come up too often. So um, for us, at least, it was something that we kind of had to take from other field sports and team sports in particular and kind of like adapt to what we are doing a little bit. Um, so, yeah, how, how was your experience with that been? Well, I, I get a lot from these podcasts as well. In fact, there's a couple, um, I don't mind dropping them. There's a, one I was listening to again last night from a, a Coach Your Brains Out, it's called. It's actually a volleyball podcast. I get a great deal. I get a great deal from that. They have some wonderful guests. The, the challenge with martial arts, especially what I'm trying to do here, is balance the, the obvious risk of the head trauma and chronic, mm. chronic injury over training authentically. And uh, I, I'm not sure I've come on the answer yet. I'm not sure I ever will. So I, I'm glad to get these opportunities and, and learn from you guys and, and, and see what you guys are doing. Mm. Yeah, because we spoke before about this, um, about the whole idea of we're kind of lucky that way that our sport is semi-contact, so yeah. we can actually afford to do a little bit more transferable and realistic practice more than um, the full contact uh, domains, you know, so we are a little bit fortunate there, so certainly that's a challenge for MMA and the likes uh, to, to get over, yeah, absolutely. And I'm speaking mostly from the, the, the striking discipline in MMA, of course, we can do the wrestling and the jiu-jitsu and, and you told me you took that out yourself recently. We can really get quite authentic training there. Yeah. And I still see it across the board, this traditional dogmatic style, and I don't think it's very effective. But um, the burden of proof is on myself and you guys to, to show that this is really the best way where we what we think we're talking in our philosophies. Yeah. It's a great place to start, actually, isn't it? I mean, because mm-hmm. no matter what, when you when you jump into these conversations, the very first and most obvious question that anyone would ask is 
well, what was wrong with the way we were doing it before? It obviously worked for whoever got to the top doing what they've been doing. Um, and uh, where do you find yourself starting that conversation? Well, I think I've mentioned this in every conversation. I, I, I'm trying not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and I was definitely guilty of doing that, you know. And um, I, was, I was also guilty of, of using the old model and the old methods for, for many years. Um, I, I think we'll get into that and how we coach and specifically over coaching. Um, a couple of the challenges I have now is, as I said, the burden of proof is going to be on me. Where are the results? Where are the champions? Where are the accolades? And uh, I, I'm quite confident that they'll come. And if they don't come, I don't think it'll be as a result of the science and the philosophy. It'll be some other factors that, that I've slipped up on or, or haven't paid attention to. But, um, and I know we live in a little bit of an echo chamber here, all the, all the guys in the space, but uh, it, there doesn't seem to be a very profound counter argument to what we're talking about, other than, as you said, lots of people have had success using that method. But, mm. And you would so, have had a lot of experience in that, Scott, as well, um, training with the likes of, I, I think you said to me before, you trained with Anthony Pettis and, and guys like this who obviously would, would come from that traditional uh, approach. Like So I, I think somebody who comes from both spaces and is able to merge a little bit of a gap there together, I think that's a massive uh, advantage. Right, and um, we spoke about Pettis last time. He, he had a lot of um, autonomy to... to be creative and stuff. He had been mm. in the, the martial arts game for for so long. So when when he when he walked in the gym and tried to transferred over to MMA, he, he was already ticking a lot of the boxes, you know, to be mm-hmm. something quite special. But he's actually fighting this week um, again. Yeah, on yeah. Against uh, Donald, yeah. Cerrone. Yeah. yeah. So I'm looking forward to it. That'd be good. Yeah. So I think that actually sets us up nicely for the, the whole conversation of over and under coaching, just like you say there, of, of somebody who, who's almost like creative and, and free-flowing. Um, you, you wouldn't really relate that to, to somebody who is really over-coached, I guess. W- w- would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I mentioned Anthony. I only trained with him for two or three years, actually, before I moved on. Um, and he had quite a great deal of experience before he came. So I'm not privy to exactly how he's been training in the last five or six years. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, he, he was something, as I say, he, he did get afforded a lot of creativity and a lot of autonomy to, to show that creativity because he was always flashy. So they didn't try and they didn't, they didn't try and remake him in any way, and you could argue that might be a detriment because mm-hmm. there's something, there's a apparently some holes that he's never managed to kind of fix, but. Um, other than that, yeah, exceptional talent. Yeah, and that's something, Adrian, that we, we've spoke about a lot, the whole idea of um, having these like personal quirks but actually become massive, massive advantages. Um, so like even when we take from our own sport, there, there's a lot of guys who come to mind who they wouldn't be like traditionally well-drilled in terms of technique and things like that, but are very, very effective. But, but what you do get, and again, like what Scott was saying there, is when a person arrives into a context, like, for example, someone walking to our national team, and they're, they're there because they've won selection, you're willing to, you know, coaches are happy enough to overlook a quirk because they're successful despite the quirk, or they're, maybe mm-hmm. they're successful because of the quirk. But it's a very, very different conversation when you talk to the same coach looking at someone who walks in at eight and nine years of age who has mm-hmm. a quirk. Because like, they're still looking at that as, I should fix that. That's something I have to fix because it doesn't match the um, the points of performance of the defined skill or the 
you know, the, the idealized version of the skill that I in, have in my head as a coach. And the question doesn't often get asked of, well, yeah, but is it effective for them? Does it work for their body mechanics? Is it, is it, is it a performance limiter? Like, is it really going to hold them back? Or is it something that, look, it might not be ideal, but will it do? Can they emphasize another strength? Mm. You know, and sometimes I think when you have a, a semi-finished article arriving, you know, it's easier to have that broader viewpoint about, well, let's focus on what they already do well. Um, cause time is of the, the, the essence at that stage, but when someone arrives with their future ahead of them at eight years of age, it's almost like, no, no, no. Now I have to go and make them a, a clone. I have to make this model mm. of the, the, the playbook, you know? Mm-hmm. And Scott, that's something you, you've spoken about before, the, the whole idea of that cookie cutter mindset. And, and maybe it's not the most practical uh, approach when, you, when it comes to martial arts, which is a, a very dynamic and complex um, interaction between two human beings, you know? Well, well I think the, the quirks are actually a real asset. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think all, all things being equal, you have a, two fighters or competitors that are, that are equal in, in size and range and all that. And and I will use the word skill here, but te- technically wise, they, they look the same. Then it's going to just come down to, I guess, speed and reactivity. Um, so I certainly see we, we spoke about McGregor, uh, not McGregor, excuse me, uh, Ferguson, who's fighting this weekend, extremely quirky and unorthodox. Mm. Uh, and he, he'll go against these high level strikers. I'm thinking Barbosa, Perez, guys like that, and, and just dismantle them because the reads and the the tails and the movement is just not the same. So uh, I'm actually all for quirks and, and, and orthodox styles. I encourage it and support it. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I find even myself when I was ever sparring with somebody who who is kind of like quirky, we say it's, do you know what? My style was always like a counter style and it was almost impossible to counter somebody like that because everything is just a little bit different and the timing is off, the rhythm is off. Um, so I always found that like the, the best approach with somebody who who is that kind of like quirky is you, you kind of have to bring the fight to them a little bit, which took me out of my comfort zone a little bit as well. So it's absolutely, it's definitely kind of like a, an advantage position to be, to be able to come in different as such, like, you know. And I think a real, a real world, world example of that is, and speaking to Adam about it, you, you could be sparring against someone who's maybe only had six or seven, seven months practice, and mm. of course you'll get the better of them eventually. But you're you're asking yourself, why the hell did I get hit with that? Because yeah. the cues and the, the, the lead up's just not there. You know, they're throwing a left when you're expecting a right and whatnot. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that was one that uh, if you go back to the beginning of my coaching journey, a little bit like yours, I was uh, definitely an imposter and a fraud that was dropped in the deep end. It kind of got thrown on me and I, I took a similar kind of route to figure my, figure my way out of that. And I signed up for uh, sport and exercise science. But one of the tips that my instructor had given me is like, don't forget, never spar the beginners. You'll always get injured sparring the beginners. <laughs> and, you know, that's exactly it. It's so right because you could you can faint, you can do all of the different things, but they, they don't have the, as I said, the, the experience of perceiving those actions, linking them to an outcome and event. There's, there's nothing. It's, it, it's, it's, it's whatever comes to mind sporadic. first and foremost. It's sporadic. You're not, yeah, you're not going to be able to, um, uh, to have predictable behaviors. So when you're sparring beginners, it's, yeah, you're always taking a little bit of a risk and you're probably always going to get hurt even if you'll outscore them or if you're going to win eventually. But they, um, yeah, I, I, I've always taken that to the heart. I'm not one for getting into the ring with the, with the competitors. Uh, I learned that lesson long before I turned 40. Uh, mm-hmm. so, yeah. 
Tell, tell me, I know we, we're we're very biased towards coaching, but uh, how much of it do you think of it is is somewhat luck? You know, I, I have there's a couple of guys and talk about Perez, a couple of guys I know. I think you could thrive in almost any gym and environment and under any kind of coach. And I, I feel sometimes coaches are a little bit too quick to take too much of the credit. And I think mm-hmm. maybe a lot of it comes down to to, to luck. You know, how, how well would Connor have done at another gym? Uh, probably remarkably well, especially in the skills and athletic side. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think there's there's uh, there's one other thing that goes with that, which is the uh, while yeah, some of it is definitely down to luck. Some of it is uh, again luck being in the right place at the right time to take an opportunity as it presents itself. And I would have said that the things that really helped me develop as a coach coming along was that my athletes were better than my coaching ability. So in other words, my athletes were pulling me forward. They kept getting better than I was able to, um, we say that, than my previous level of experience. So I had to go learn and try to follow and chase them along to catch up with the level they were competing at, which throws you into that spiral of, as you said, searching for solutions, searching for new ways to answer questions so that you can stay relevant to them. And I think, no matter how uh, lucky or unlucky you are as a, as, a, as a coach, at some point you're going to have athletes who have a level of ability that will challenge your level of ability as a coach. Mm-hmm. And when you meet them and you follow along with them, uh, you know, it, it forces you or challenges you to up your game. Some will, some won't. And I think that's, maybe that's the point where, where it differentiates is you know, if you are lucky enough to have an athlete that challenges you because you know, they, they respond well to whatever it is you're doing or just to the fact that they had you know, the right athletic abilities in the first place, your response to that then I think is, you know, what makes it not just luck. I think that's where the, the rest of it comes in. I think that brings up an interesting point as well on the idea of over and under coaching of the, the ego of the coach. I think that that's really an, an important factor in, the, in this whole thing. Uh, what, what do you think about, about that, Scott, the whole idea of maybe some coach maybe coming in there with their ego and putting their, their own, we say, desires before the des- desires and needs of the athlete? Well, I think that's pretty typical. I'm probably a little guilty of that myself. I think it's easy to have your ego inflated as a coach. It's almost, it's perhaps because of that kind of paternal role we have, but um, I'm always reminded everyone seems to have the, the best coach in the world. Mm-hmm. They all talk about it. It's almost like, the, you know, the mugs, right? you're the greatest dad ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, everyone has one. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I, I, try and, I, I, I try and keep grounded. Um, but, yeah, my, I'm, I'm the same as anyone else. I can let my ego get away with itself. But um, I'm fortunate that, again, I don't, I don't quite have the, the, the results yet. So that, that definitely keeps me grounded. So I'm, I'm always second-guessing it. Mm. Uh, I, I think as well, it, it, at times that can actually be quite innocent and it can just come from passion of coaches maybe being so passionate about the sport and about their athletes that they're trying to give all the answers. And at times that can be almost a, like it can be something that will actually hold your athletes back a little bit by, by being so passionate and looking to give them the answers, you actually make them become a little bit dependent on you. And I guess uh, as a coach, especially in the combat side of things, we always want to, to build the athletes who are not really dependent on us and, and can adapt and make decisions effectively for themselves. Well, and that brings us, that's a good segue into, you know, when we're talking about over and under coaching and, and this kind of uh, implicit and explicit 
you know, forms of learning and coaching. And I've definitely transitioned from uh, one to the other. Adrian, I'd be, or uh, Rich as well, I'd be interested in your, your perspective or your um, take on, on what the difference is there between implicit and explicit. From a learning point of view rather than motivation? Well, from a, just uh, rather than telling, okay, maybe I'm, I'm loading the question. No, wrong no, 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 not at all. I mean, I just uh, very often I consider like, you know, the motivation, you know, the intrinsic versus extrinsic or the implicit, mm -hmm. but like for the, uh, in, in terms of the uh, the teaching, like for me, it definitely came from the point of view of you set the task with the solution to the task in mind and with the path to the solution to the task in mind. And it was uh, very much starting from the end and planning your way all the way back to the beginning and then poking at the athletes anytime they took a foot off the path until they followed your path all the way to the end. And it was you know, it's, it's very effective in building a, a level of um, trust and reliance between, you know, the athlete and the coach if your information is pretty good and your knowledge is pretty good because it seems then that what you say works because, it you know, it has an, an obvious, yeah, the skill got better or, yeah, I won the match. And, you know, I did that because the information you gave me was good and I applied it well. But it runs out fast because you can never, you know, have enough foresight to you know outthink all the problems that are going to arrive in front of somebody and so it's more like can you equip the person with the principles to solve problems with good principles to solve a wide variety of problems rather than the solution to a number of problems where the problem the number of problems is infinite there are multiple solutions to every problem so the more you try to give solutions out it's just like road learning and you can't access it fast enough where it's far more efficient, just like if you were programming a computer to give it the principles, let it work out, you know, how to, how to apply the principle. And, you know, you'll be surprised and delighted sometimes when you see a novel answer to the problem. Mm. Yeah. I love that idea about coaching the principles rather than the, you know, specifics. Um, and I guess a lot of your work too is in coaching it, it revolves around demonstrations. And I, I, I'm wondering, how many details you would limit yourself to. I, I watched a video the other day on YouTube because uh, I was trying to clean up a technique of my own and get some concepts down. And the, the, the guy that was teaching was, he was wonderfully clear, he was wonderfully concise. He spent about seven or eight minutes showing this particular technique and I counted at least 25 small details. And, uh, and everyone's in awe of how, how his technical knowledge and how he, how he was coming across and he spoke clearly, added a little bit of humor and whatnot, but for me, it was just ridiculously overcoached in too much detail. How do you feel about that? Do you try and restrict, restrict yourselves to uh, short, little snappy details or? Yeah, I think that's interesting because there's, there's certainly a fine line between that because I, I find that the more details you give, the more, certain athletes will pick up on certain things that are kind of relevant to them. And I think it all comes back to kind of like what's relevant to us when we get information, you know, for example, you might read a book and it might, it might just hit you with that point of your life that you're in right now, as opposed to if you read it five mm. years previous, it mightn't have the same impact. And I think that that's a, kind of something that um, uh, happens in coaching as well. And so there's definitely for and against that of giving multiple points of information and things like that. And, um, but of course, then there comes a point when it's just too much and, yeah, I think that, that the whole idea of um, just finding that right balance, but 
again, if if you go back to the idea you just spoke about of um, principles and concepts, I think that's a much better approach because if you can give people the the general concepts and principles that will generally have a have a good result or, or outcome, I think that then it allows people to kind of explore the relevant things that they're feeling with that technique or that situation or whatever, and to kind of get it a little bit more um, kind of like building on those blocks of learning that they already have, if that makes sense. No, it makes, it makes sense. And uh, I don't want to overdo the, the, the science jargon here, but uh, I, I, you'll be familiar with them. I call them aha moments. You know, mm. just you go in the gym one day, just something you picked up, it's a small detail or a quirk, or you're just like, you know, you know, skies open kind of thing. And, and that's what we try and do in our practices. Try and give enough, uh, create an environment where there's as many of these little aha moments as we can get. And uh, from my earlier my earlier experience in coaching, it, it was completely different. You know, I, I'd meticulously show all the little small fine details now. Often to beginners, which yeah. was just a complete waste of waste of time because they came away feeling completely incompetent. I wasted half the class just yapping and talking about it. So. Um, it's actually nice to come from uh, make such transition because I can look back now and, and see what an awful job I was doing. Yeah, that, that's something that's, it's difficult as a coach always, isn't it? Like to find that right balance because, of course, like when beginners come in, for example, you want to give them a nice broad base and, and then kind of as they progress, get deeper and deeper uh, in certain particular pieces of information. But um, yeah, certainly a challenge for all of us. But just going back very quickly on, on a point there that Adrian was saying um, about the implicit and the explicit learning. I think that um, for me personally, I, for a long time, I was kind of favoring the, the implicit uh, approach of putting uh, athletes in a situation where they're able to kind of almost instinctively solve problems and, and things like that. But Adrian, actually, then we had a little conversation about it once over WhatsApp, I think, and he brought up a great point of game plan and strategy and, and how that explicit information about the game is actually so important as well. Uh, and I think especially for our sport, that's particularly important because uh, for us, we have two rounds of two minutes generally at, at the high level. So it's, it's not really a lot of time that you have there to be able to go through rounds and adapt your strategy and things like that. So I think from, from it's funny because I actually just put a post about this today about um, decision making and, and adaptability. And I think they yeah, tie right. in really, really well together because you need both implicit and explicit in or sorry explicit information there to uh to tie both of them together in a nice combination i think you know to um to get that strategy and game plan down while also executing it within within the the match or the boat you know yeah and in, in terms of seeing that and reading in practice we have a little bit more time we can slow things down a, a little more um what i've been finding a little bit or increasing success in is if we're trying to do a particular technique or a move we'll just put it into open spar we'll, we'll give a lot of opportunities for action you know create these affordances but but what, what's been very helpful is to, to remind the students and athletes just let everything else kind of be noise and if you're trying to react to too many things or have four or five different counters that you're going to do at a particular time, it's just not going to be a good way to add the tool to your box. Mm -hmm. And I think it's remarkable uh, if you can land a couple of things or, or defend or react to a couple of things in real time, it just all of a sudden seems to, to be in your toolkit. Yeah. And yeah. getting to that stage is that you, you can drill it over and over and over 
and it's just not there. So you need to have that kind of, I don't know, self-validation or something. It's, it's, it's amazing how it can just turn up in your, turn up in the live stuff though. And so that, that's been, I'm rambling kind of bit about that, but uh, that's been a real good strategy for me at the moment, just focusing on one particular thing in amongst the noise. It's an interesting little aside to that. Well, it, it follows on from that. Um, as you're, you know, as you said, dialing in on one or two things that you want to see improved, regard the rest of it as noise, focus on the, um, the important information, the things that you want to see, you know, to precipitate the action. How do you balance or do you consider the balance between like attacking decisions or defensive decisions? Because you're always trying to balance and develop both sides of the game, the attack, the defense. And like, do you give any consideration to how you balance those? Well, I guess I'm a little biased towards uh, counter-striking. Like you said, you were, Richie. So Richie, definitely, yeah. A lot of the, the and I mentioned this before, I'm reluctant to call them drills now. We call them exchanges. Again, I'm, I'm trying to get the, the, the kids, and well, I call them kids, the adults. They all seem kids to me. Um, I'm trying to get them in this, this, this idea, this mindset, that they can internalize. This is an exchange. It's, it's on both sides. But I tend to favor the, uh, and find the more beauty in the counter-striking game. So typically our practices are, are skewed more towards that. And that might not suit someone who's more naturally aggressive and wants to come forward. So I, I definitely need to um, rebalance things there now and again. But generally through when I run the exchanges, there's always an opportunity for both sides. And one's typically the, the aggressor and um, one's typically the defender in, in the exchange. So it is fairly well balanced. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point because I, that actually brings me back to in I don't know if you're familiar with it, Scott, but in Ireland we have a sport called hurling. Um, and when I was playing hurling as a younger kind of like teenager and things, we used to always switch positions. So if you're a defender, you would uh, have to also play as an attacker, and and you kind of pick up like tricks and things that you you'd see that people liked and didn't like, and maybe. Uh, little things that people did when they were playing against you that you know took you out of your comfort zone and things like that and I think that that kind of a, an approach is actually very important because if somebody is like taken out of their comfort zone there and, and they're generally attacking minded we say but you put them into like that counter striking environment that they, they got to adapt with that it, it gives them a good opportunity to kind of see what's happening and I, I, I think that goes back to that explicit learning of just having a deeper understanding and knowledge of the game uh, and just being able to kind of like you know pick up on little things and, and things like that. So I think that's important for people to be able to jump in and out of those various spaces as well. Yeah, and uh, let me ask you: Are you encourage your students to? I'm not wholly familiar with Taekwondo to switch your stance from orthodox to uh, southpaw or whatever. Typically, let them be a preference of their own. Generally not. It's not something that we would see um, too often in the current game. It's funny, we only did an analysis uh, last Friday of that, and it was, it was a big part of the game maybe in maybe a decade ago, but generally now it wouldn't be a massive part. So we would generally look to have people lead off their attacking side, which would be a little bit more stronger and faster in terms of their lead leg, which is a dominant part of the game for us right now. So, yeah, but... Um, I guess you can you can mix that up a little bit as well and, and force people to to lead off their weaker side and things like that with constraints, I guess, and um, just to explore things a little more. Yeah, we do use that as well. You know, swapping of sides to control success rate in scenarios. So when we mm -hmm. when we have scenarios, for example, if it was a counter attacking 
scenario and the, the person who's countering isn't experiencing enough success to build confidence in their competence with the technique or with the skill that they're trying to work on swapping the other person onto their non-dominant side is often a, a nice way to build up a little bit of um uh if that works because obviously sometimes the counter is dependent on what side the person's on but you know uh, often something like that, having someone attacking off their non-dominant side is a great way of giving another person an opportunity to be successful too. And I guess we all have the same goal. We all want, we all want these athletes to um, you know, get to the stage of uh, uh, the last stage. And what's the last stage in bits of automation? Oh yeah. I was going to jump into the uh, unconscious competence, but automation is the other. You know, no, no. Uh, yeah, that, yeah. that works too. <laughs> However, when when we're in class, I always want this kind of cognitive element. I always want them thinking about something, you know, and and actually not going to autopilot. So I, I try and I try and avoid that as much as I can, or or uh, you know reinforce that that while we're in class, we're always thinking of something just to push them out that that comfort zone and actually be you know processing something. And it's great when you see some of the, you know, you'll see it yourself, you have some kids come in and you can almost, you can almost hear the, the, the cogs churning inside and they're not necessarily the, the most athletic or the most aggressive, but they just pick things up really well. They're always thinking. And then conversely, you get the other side. So mm. Very rarely they tick all the boxes, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's very important because I know like from my own experience from being a competitor and, and from being a coach, there's certain people, they don't just, they don't have those natural tendencies that maybe, you know, for us, it will be reach and, and very flexible legs and things like that for Taekwondo specifically. But it also then gives people who don't have those natural abilities to, to come into the game and, and find their own type of success. And I think that's one of the most important things that we can take from this kind of a, an approach to coaching, just being able to facilitate other people that they can go and, and experiment with different, um, I guess, different tactics and, and approaches for them to be successful as well. And it's kind of going off, to, off track here a little, but if, if you have a, a, a pair, I come across this quite a lot because we don't quite have the depth in the, in the squad yet, but... I always encourage them to, and it's tough for the, the B side or the person who's maybe less experienced, but I always kind of want uh, the, 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 the more experienced person or the, 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 person, the, the side with the more ability to, to bring the other side up, to stay ahead of them, rather than come down to that level, try and, try and pick your partner up. Does that, does that make sense? I'm wondering how you deal with that, because it, it, it can tend to be, especially, you know, done this myself when you're going with someone who perhaps is an experience you're, you're really slowed down from them and you have to but you also you don't want to overdo that so that, that no one's really getting anything out of it so looking for that kind of challenge point and that staying in that area how do you feel about that yeah definitely and i don't think there's many of us that have such a, a diverse and you know and and strong and deep squad of uh, athletes that we're working with that everyone has five, six, seven training partners who are on the same level as them. It's just, it, it doesn't work that way. So, you know, very often we're asking the most experienced person to uh, find a new challenge within uh, the scenario. So if uh, we tend to look at it in terms of, you know, if you, if you want to talk about your exchanges, your interactions, if they're starting to be successful more than 60% of the time, it's, it's getting to that point where it's like, okay, now we're into the brain is turned off. Now it's too easy. We're not in a challenge state. We've got to try and find something else. So for them, it's a, for, for those situations, it's a case of I'll happily break the scenario or the game or the exchange 
to bias it a little bit more in terms of the other person or to restrict add challenge add you know uh, cognitive load to the person that I'm I'm looking to continue working otherwise for me what happens when you have someone who is world-class you, you can no longer train them because they don't have a training partner so you have to be able to make subpar that's that, that's an unfortunate it's disrespectful to the people themselves people who aren't quite on that stage yet even if it's just that they're like we say rich one of richie's training partners over the years like thomas like thomas at 57 kilos is not a match for richie at 85 90 kilos but if they both challenge each other with the appropriate you know scenarios and the appropriate uh, constraints they can both improve even right. though they're not a natural fit so those i think are the things that we need to do and i mean plenty of examples of them but those are the things i think that really allow someone to stay or for the training environment to stay relevant to a person for a longer period of time yeah i do try and remind a lot of the students that who are, who are on the on the way up that them coming in and getting getting their ass handed to them day after day they're probably getting more out of it so what would you do with someone who, who like you said was at the high level or head and shoulders above everyone else you tend to handicap them or encourage them to find alternate training partners yeah for for me luckily at the moment i'm able to kind of like jump in because a lot of my my higher level guys are still teenagers and things like that so i'm able to kind of jump in there and give them a little bit of a test because obviously just with that little bit more experience and, and being a senior as well um it's, it's a challenge for them but i, I it's something that I, I think of a lot it's like what am i going to do when, when these guys catch up and are beating me up handily enough what am i going to do then so i think that comes back to, to being a facilitator as a coach and, and having that know-how how to adapt the, the constraints and things like that to, to make make them continuously challenge and and to be put in situations which which test them and ultimately ultimately we want that day to come right we want our, our yeah. students to, to leapfrog us um and that certainly isn't good for the ego um do you feel the coach has to be the the, the sharpest best no. guy my ego is my ego is long buried. <laughs> it, it died <laughs> years ago. <laughs> I, I have been surpassed in every conceivable way on the floor by my students. And I'm more than happy to say that in a public forum. On, you know, um, I, I am delighted to say that, yeah, my students have definitely surpassed my achievements and my abilities uh, in competitive Taekwondo. And yeah, that's absolutely the goal. And I hope I have many more that do that. Um, but you know, I mean, in terms of the things that you were talking about there and, and, and how do we challenge them, you can increase the mental load. So you can ask them to be focusing on, on mental skills while doing, uh, you know, a, 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 an exchange that's based around, as it, whether it's an attack and a counterattack, a, a scenario in the ring. You can add mental load uh, or cognitive load by uh, introducing concentration, thought stopping, uh, distraction training. You can ask them uh, to have to be shifting internal to external focus, you know, reacting to a scoreboard, a changing scenario. You know, they score tonight, they score, there's a foul, there's a change in the scoreboard requires a response. You can change physical loads so you can uh, swap their training partners more quickly when they're in there. Or, you know, if there's a score required to get a break or to get out or to swap or rotate, maybe they have to get two scores or they have to score with, you know, uh, you know, offside and, and their preferred side, or they have to score in combination or, you know, everything is about playing with, I think, um, respecting them more as an athlete and giving them a challenge that's relevant to them in that moment that, you know, 
that doesn't really interfere with what the other person's trying to achieve. So in challenging the, the maybe the more skilled person, it shouldn't be interfering with the um, with 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 the exchange for the the less skilled person. They should still be trying to achieve the same things, and not kind of put off or distracted by what's going on. That's that's a fine balance. And when you get it wrong, you get it wrong. And you just try something else and accept that you got it wrong. It sounds as though you're gamifying all your practice, and that's 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 what I'm trying to do as well. I have been for a while, and uh, it, it certainly helped engage people. Mm, I think I think that's uh, it. And we spoke about this a good few times. That that whole idea of gamifying and games in martial arts is something that's frowned upon because people actually don't understand the term. Um, so the, the whole idea of basically having two active sides and one ha- has to achieve their task and the other has to achieve a task of their own, I think it is, is where it's at rather than actually having a game. When you say a game, sometimes people think it's a game of a tag and a game of chase. And I think that's something that we, uh, we, we kind of find as a challenge in the martial arts um, forum, you know? Terminology is a thing. Terminology mm-hmm. is a thing. Because we, we yeah. had issues in, in our coach education when we referred, we, we used the old terminology and of, you know, of the 80s in terms of, teaching games for understanding because it sounded like something that would be easier to get across to people than, you know, uh, uh, things like ecological dynamics or constraints-based learning, or, you know, that's a tough thing to sell to a 16 year old who's never coached. Um, but games for understanding as in, we have a game that teaches understanding. It, it seems so much easier mm. until we came across this, you know, nomenclature problem, which is, you know, people thought games automatically it's not as important it's frivolous it's it, it's messing it's uh you know it and it was it's a tough sell to get people to understand that no this is not chase this is not tag this is not stuck in the mud this is our game is called sparring our game is you know it's the fight game and you know and in the end that's our whole sport is a game so we're just taking smaller subsets of that to make it easier to understand yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. We were speaking a little bit about uh, overcoaching. Where do you think the line is, or is it balances between? And, and I, I mentioned to Richie before some of the pushback I get, or the perception, the way I, I, I deliver my coaching is perhaps I'm considered to that I undercoach. And um, could you maybe give me what your definition of that would be, or some of the uh, hallmarks or characteristics of undercoaching might be? To see how many fit with me. Personally, I, I think it's it's something that uh, that we, we all struggle with, and I don't think there's a right answer to this. Uh, I don't know what your your thoughts are on this, Adrian, but I, I, I think that, that that's always a balancing act, and you kind of have to get it right. Sometimes I feel like I'm overcoaching, other times I feel like I'm a little bit passive. And I, I, I think it's it's finding that just that sweet spot is uh, is one of the most challenging things about this whole approach. And I can the more um, especially in the during the lockdown and things like that at the moment I've been reading up a lot obviously and this term facilitator keeps coming up time and time again whether it's in psychology whether it's in skillac no, no matter where it, it just keeps coming up and I, I think that that's something that um, it, it's the key but knowing how much to facilitate and how much to, to be a little bit more proactive with it I think that that's that's the where, where the real coaching is and the experience maybe comes in a bit more you know yeah, I think from uh, from the perspective of the the over under coaching, like between the disciplines, I find I flip, I flip flop. Mm. So when we're coaching sparring, I would tend to be on the 
like certainly not was a habitually undercoaching, but I would definitely be less vocal uh, and I would step in less and I would, you know, jump in and correct form technique, etc. much less when it's sparring. I would let the situation develop. I'll ask more questions. I'll set, I'll reset challenges. But when it comes to patterns, I very definitely can be guilty of overcoaching. It's just mm. jumping in as technical correction, technical correction, technical correction. And it's, it's struggling to find the language to frame the right challenge for, for uh, patterns. But I think characteristics wise, um, you know, when I think you, you'll recognize when you're under coaching, when the rate of failure is causing uh, a little bit of a shock to the confidence or, or the, the feeling of confidence of the person. So it'll usually be where you've got the level of challenge wrong. When the, when the game isn't the teacher anymore, and you're failing to recognize that the game isn't a teacher right now and that something is needed, some intervention is needed. I mean, the coaching doesn't need to be, I'll tell you how to solve the problem, but the coaching might need to be, I need to adjust this problem so that you're capable of finding a solution. Yeah, I agree with that. I find myself having to do that quite a lot, which means I haven't calibrated the, the challenge point correctly and, I, and I'll, I'll stop everything we're doing and we'll kind of regress and make it, make it a little easier. Because uh, I spoke to, uh, when I mentioned to Richie before, uh, one of the discussions I had with a friend of mine, he's a PhD in sports psych, and um, he was talking about SDT and the, you know, um, motivation theory. And you need that sense of competency. And often when guys, are, guys and girls are, are leaving my class, they feel anything but competent because it, it's been a real hard challenge in class. And, uh, I do worry that I'm, I'm a little overzealous on that, on that side, and I need to bring that back now and again, and and, and give them the, the, the appropriate opportunity to, to feel good and feel confident. So that's definitely a, a definitely a weakness of mine. I'm always thinking if if they're not challenged, if they're not in that uncomfortable space and that growth zone, then we're not getting anything out of the practice. But so I, again, I need to I need to dial that back from time to time strategically. Mm. Weakness is definitely the wrong word. If you're that reflective on your own coaching practice that you can identify how people are feeling and what their level of challenge was and whether or not they're experiencing that feeling of competence, you're definitely not failing. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, I, I think that's, that's a very, very good place to be. Um, we can always just turn the dial too far one way or the other. And luckily where people are resilient and we get to have a bad day and come back and, you know, those bad days teach good lessons too. I mean, there's resilience that comes out of that. And there's, you know, there's a lot of other good things that come out of having those bad days. So for me, I, I try not to worry about messing it up. I mean, that's one of the things that when you lose your ego, you can forgive yourself a little bit as well about the, uh, you know, not having a brilliant coaching day. You just go home, you make yourself a cup of coffee and you go, right. Okay. Today wasn't great, but there's tomorrow. So we do, <laughs> we'll, we'll try tomorrow and uh, hope that that one's better. But uh yeah, I think that anybody who, who who's going to be successful in in this um, domain as well, in terms of like um, combat, they're they're going to have to um, eventually find some sort of resilience that they need to overcome, and and that that challenge where it's not going to be easy because they're they're not going to reach their full potential if that's not the case, you know. And I think being outside of that comfort zone is something kind of where the best live a little bit of the time, especially uh, early on when they're, when they're really developing, I think. Um, so I, I think that having your practice based on that is something that's actually very good. Now, um, some people might not suit because maybe they're 
their confidence is down and things like that. So yeah, getting that that sweet spot I think is uh, is key. So something that we have to be aware of for sure. I know there's some some of the pushback you get also is it um, or I've heard it before. You know, not not everyone wants to to you know achieve great things in the sport. They're just coming in to have fun mm. with their, their mm. pals or find a workout and that. And, and, and I, I I can see that I can see that perspective. But I think everyone who steps in the gym wants to be better. And so there's always that capacity for improvement. I mean, they all have different goals, but yeah. why not say practice up to, to, to let everyone improve, you know? Because like, yeah, that's where enjoy- the human enjoyment comes from, obviously, is yeah. the development and the progression. Like, if, if you come and you just get a sweat, it's it's not going to be something that they, they'll stick at for, for a long time. You know, they might do it for a few weeks and then they'll eventually just fall off. I think uh, as humans, mm-hmm. we're looking for that, that incremental growth, whether, whether you're looking to be a competitor or whether you're looking just to do it for fun. Uh, it's like when, when you go to the gym, if, if everybody was lifting the same way at every single week, I don't think that they would they would do it for a long time. You know, it's, it's right. human nature for us to find these like incremental pieces of, of uh, development. But- if you take it like exactly as Scott has said there, like the person who's coming in, if they're not into it for like, if they don't want to get better, what you've got is someone who's looking to be entertained and that will last in the same way as a movie does. You can be entertained for a while. And, but as soon as you've watched, like, you know, how often has it happened? You start watching a box set or a series and you know, four or five episodes in, it's, it's just, you've, you've figured out what the pattern is. You know what the, how the story's going to go and it's just not interesting or entertaining anymore. And I think, like that's what happens when you're no longer engaged mentally, when you're not learning. And the brain has a, a very interesting way of fooling you. So you can sit down and watch do, you know, a documentary or a series of documentaries in Discovery, and you think you're learning something, but you're not. And you're, because you're not actually, everything's being fed to you. You're just, you're not, your brain is being tricked into thinking it's being engaged. But eventually it falls short. And I think that's what happens. You can go to a class where you know, there's something novel every day or there's something that's easy but different. And it's, it's engaging in an entertaining sense, but it's not as satisfying in the long term as that feeling that competence gives, which is I can see myself progressing. I can see my skill improving. And that conversely, that's a huge challenge we have with high performing people who are already really, really good. And that's why they'll often go into other you know, domains, I think, is where they get to the point where they can no longer perceive competence increasing. They, mm. it, it, the increments are too small. And they're also... As I said, it's that path to success where there's, there's back steps. You know, you have your two steps back and another two steps forward and maybe a third step forward before two back. And maybe the line gradually goes up over time, but you can't see it. You know, it's very hard to see it. And I think that's where as a coach, you know, letting people experience like or helping them to engage with developing competence is, is a massive towards motivation. And then finding a way to help people recognize their improvement or their, their competence gains when their the gains get small is a another challenge mm. like that, that that's one of the things for me just after i said to you scott that uh, i started jiu-jitsu recently and and for me going from taekwondo at a, at a, a decent level and as adrian was saying the increments of, of growth are just really really small and you're almost going backwards a few steps to, to go forward just going in there as a white belt and getting those newbie gains and, and, and de- developing so quickly, like that's addictive, like, you know, and that's where mm-hmm. the enjoyment comes for a lot of people, I think. Well, and I think that's an advantage we have in MMA. There, there's so many pieces to string together that there's really not enough years in your life to, to be a master of everything. Um, but it's also 
why it's so crucial to get the training right, you know, and not waste time. Um, mm. We spoke about coaching before. I, I was doing a little bit of blogging before I wrote something, just kind of calculating the lost time. And uh, we consider an hour training session and, and, and each unit is a minute. You know, if a coach is yapping or talking or bullshitting for six minutes, that's, that's 10% of your development time. You start adding that up and that the, the compound effect of that is it, quite profound. So, again, I overshoot and I try and say a little and, uh, you know, we're on the clock, let's go, let's go, let's go. And, um, but there's definitely a great deal of idle time in traditional in the traditional methods. And like you spoke about, uh, one-sided drilling is, is you've effectively lost 50% plus. And that's, that's the one thing that unifies us all, isn't it? So, I mean, you look at what it will take to reach a high level of performance and, you know, all factors being equal, the person who can make best use of their time over their competitive career will mm. probably get the most gains. Like, you know, it, I, I had a huge thing where at one point in time, I was convinced that one of my more successful athletes was as successful as she was, but she was never injured. You know, virtually all of the other athletes that you'd look at around the place, they'd be missing a month here or two weeks here, or you know, and then they're, they're constantly in these cycles of coming back up to form. It's like, well, if you're never injured, you're, you're just training. And, you know, you're yeah. always working from a baseline and going forward rather than going back and trying to get to your baseline. And that's just a, you know, a small example of case in point where if you can be, like you said, if you can be a little more efficient, if you can get five or six minutes into every training session, you know, that hour that a person is committed to you is, you know, 10% more valuable. Great. You know, that sounds great. Yeah. Uh, Adrian, speaking of um, like you're a coach developer, are you following a kind of curriculum here or are you like to kind of impose your own kind of philosophies and stuff? Okay. So the, just to, to quickly, as, as quickly as I can put that across, um, all of the coaching programs for all of the sports in Ireland are, uh, developed on a national curriculum or national syllabus. So that would define the learning outcomes for each of the coaching levels. Um, but within that, then each sport has to develop a sport specific implementation of that. So what does, for example, uh, an outcome related to planning ability mean if you're doing Taekwondo versus soccer versus rugby, and they're quite different things. Um, so yes, we can absolutely implement both our own personal philosophies overlaying the, how the, uh, the learning objectives are achieved and also the sports philosophy over, over that as well. Um, so there, there's a good degree of freedom while still meeting it with a national standard of competence. And they are different sports, of course, but the principles we talk about are the same, they're kind of broad. Uh, are, do you tend to buck the trend compared to your colleagues or are you all kind of somewhat on the same page? I think what you'll find is that, no, not entirely bucking the trend, but what you'll tend to see is that the, the kind of things that we're talking about in terms of, in particular, the skill acquisition side of things, tend to be seen as more like, well, that's more advanced. So rather than it's an underlying philosophy of how people learn, it's a case of, well, first we'll teach, teach coaches how to, you know, we call it like the ideal framework. So introduce and demonstrate a skill, give an explanation with a couple of coaching points, observe practice, provide feedback, and then you go into detail on that. That's still fine, you know, as a, as a general acronym or, you know, mnemonic to help people remember, you know, sequence things. But then you have to get into, well, it's an athlete that's learning. It's a human being. How does the human being work? How does that change if the human being is 
4.17.55. How does it change if uh, the person has, you know, uh, more or less experience within the sport and a different frame of reference? Um, and how does it change depending on what the goal of the activity is? And, you know, that's where uh, it's a higher level coaching um, concept, I suppose. And it's fine that it's at a higher level. But definitely within, I think within the team sports, um, you know, in a big way, they're, uh, they're far more keen to push uh, coaching philosophy this way. Um, within the individual sports, less so, I would say. And definitely, as Richie said, alluded to in the beginning, and a reason that, you know, uh, your chat on um, Talent Equation podcast jumped out at us is because within fight sports, within martial arts, within a lot of individual sports, this whole area hasn't really, it's not like we can, you know, pick a book off a shelf, read it and go, oh, that's how it'll work for me. There's a lot more discussions to be had, experimentation to be done. And, you know, I think that's exciting too. And I imagine it's more of a challenge for you guys because you're dealing with uh, younger younger kids. So there's a lot more of this kind of maybe extrinsic uh, motiv- motivation involved there. You know, their parents are forcing them and shoehorning them into this, this sport. I tend to think the, the adults are walking into my German club. They, they want to be there. So that, that's a little different. Couple of times my kids' coaches uh, called in or whatever, and I've had to I've had to go and teach your kids. So, what do they say? You, you can't coach unless you you can coach kids. So, I'm I'm, I'm uh, acutely aware of my my uh, limitations now. Yeah, that, but that's true. But do you know what? Since, since I've kind of adapted more to this type of coaching, I found that um the, the kind of like the people's mindset toward towards sparring and things like that has changed, and it's more enjoyable for people now. And I know that that was like um, like Stu, Stu on um, the Talent Equation. I know that that's what he's hitting at behind us. All of this is to get more people involved in sport mm-hmm. by having it more enjoyable and things like that. And I've noticed um, like for young children who join Taekwondo for, for the most part, it's because their parents want them to learn self-defense, which usually is a byproduct of children being shy and, and not really looking to be too aggressive and things like that. So when you tell them put on the sparring gear, it's usually met with a sigh and not really enthusiastic faces. But not, now I've, I've recently found that like they're actually really enjoying it and they're much more open to it with, with um, this type of an approach, to be honest, you know? I think we, I think we're sparring. I found this at the last gym I coached at. I used to coach a cardio kickboxing, which just crushed my soul minute by minute every week. Um, and I managed to convince, uh, I hate I'm sexist here, but there was, you know, some, some of the, the ladies in there, they just came for a workout and I managed to convince them to, to, to try out the regular classes. And I put them in situations where we were, you know, sparring super light with me, controlled, they, they had nothing to worry about. And they just loved it. Mm. So I, I think people, do, there's, a, there's a certain fear that they're, especially when they're starting, they're going to get, you know, beat up or injured or whatnot. And if you can, if you can adequately remove that and reassure them that, it can be done safely. Um, yeah, I think it's extremely engaging, and yeah. it's, it's hard. It's hard to find people who don't love it. Actually, mm, I, I find as well that the, the benefit of it is when when people kind of have an understanding of what the the limitations of of the the exchange are for example they, they kind of feel a little bit safer in, in terms of mm. when when they go free sparring maybe it's just a little bit more open and a little bit more chaotic especially with children you know and um, but but another point on that as well is that I, I find with children the, the terminology is massive and when you introduce things like levels and and uh, progression and points and coins and all these 
game, like, you know, video game kind of terminology, I think that the level of engagement just goes through the roof is what I found mm-hmm. with it anyway. And and this type of coaching actually facilitates that as well is because it, it, they kind of go hand in hand. You know, you can go through levels and you can you can morph into different techniques and all this stuff. And, and children love that because that, that's kind of like what they're doing and, and that's what they're able to relate to as well, you know. Do you find, uh, I'm finding in MMA, it's, maybe it's because it's a, it's a longer learning curve. There's so many disciplines to throw in and it is a newer sport. So people have come in from, not so much now, this new breed of kids that are coming up, I've done everything from the start, but typically it was a boxer would be coming into having it around out as grappling as wrestling or vice versa. Uh, but it seems to be the, the almost like the peak age, and I'm sure that'll come down, but the peak age of MMA uh, fighters at the moment I'd say it's around 30, maybe maybe even a little beyond that. But I guess in Taekwondo, it's much younger. I mean, you've retired already, Richard. Yeah, so I, I retired in 2017. Um, so I would have been maybe 25 or something. So, But I, I would have been competing at, at the highest level possible for 10 years. So 2007, I would have gone on the national team. And I would have been competing 2007, 2017 at that level. Um, so yeah, I just I just think that like if you look at the the world and European champions from the last few years in our sport, I think it's safe to say the majority of them will be under the age of twenty three. Ah uh, yeah yeah definitely they're definitely getting younger. Under the age of thirty. Oh yeah, and what you what you'll find is there are some who've been winning for a considerable length of time, you know, for potentially seven eight years who are yeah thirty thereabouts. But the majority of the, we say, the first-time world champions, the age of a person winning a world title for the first time is definitely dropping drastically to early 20s. Mm. Um, and I think a, a big factor of that is exactly the same as with Richie. It's those people are potentially engaged with a national team and traveling to international competitions from the age of 14. So 10 years into, um, I mean, for a lot of them, that's 10 years into five, six, seven training sessions a week. That's, um, you know, making and cutting weight it's uh traveling abroad four five six times a year it's saving all of your money it's not going out with your friends it's not going to birthdays it's it's all that stuff for 10 years and you're still in your early 20s it's uh you know whereas i think for the likes of myself being a little bit older than richie i didn't start that journey till i was 21 22 so for me I did my, we say nine years of it and uh, stopped competing for the most part internationally at 30. But so I had pretty much all 10 years as a part of an adult career. Um, I think that was far more common years ago um, and certainly didn't come close to winning anything major in the first five, six years of it, you know? Um, so I think now that we're seeing so many young people jumping up to that level, you know, it, it's going to change things. And you may well see that. I mean, if, if all of those um, kids you see on YouTube and Facebook that are, you know, six years of age and doing really astounding drills on tie pads, uh, you know, in their parents' kitchens, um, you know, if those kids come through, by the time they're 18, they'll have already had a 14-year career. And, um, you know, I don't know how much of an adult career they're going to have in MMA, you know? Mm-hmm. So you think perhaps it's not it's more when you start but the, the the general longevity or the window I think it's more like um yeah if you're looking into Jean Cote and uh, and things like that in terms of the you know phase of training you know you have your sampling phase your you know and so on and but it'll finish up on that specialization phase I think it's more about how long you're specialized and I think the earlier you specialize the, you know, there's only a certain amount of time that anyone will spend engaged in any activity at that level. I mean, it's, 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 it's very, not only is it very taxing, but just 
I suppose we, we, as human beings, we search for novelty as well. You know, we don't want to, you know, it, it's very hard to have the exact same routine and there are, sorry, the exact same attention to the same task for a prolonged period of time. You want change, you want some novelty, you want, you know, um, something to get you excited. And it's going to be very hard to con constantly reinvent that within the one sport or the one environment, which, you know, for those who can do it, huge respect, uh, but they're rare. Yeah, I think as well uh, for for us, like it, it's a hobby. We're not getting paid for this. We're 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 paying to go abroad and to compete. Whereas maybe in the MMA scene, there, there's that goal of maybe reaching the UFC and Bellator and big promotions like this of, of making it an actual career. So I, I guess there's a little bit of a difference there. But um, but generally, yeah, it's interesting to see how how, how that would um play out with the the amount of specialization that has to be done, like you were saying there, and when these kids get to 10, 15 years of this type of a lifestyle, will, will they still have the passion for it and things like that? It'll be interesting to see, especially with the, the prize money and things like that um, in the MMA side. So I, I know there seems to be a disconnect there, though, because I, I do, you know, I advocate for parents that are coming in as well to our gym, and there's been a few that perhaps want their kids in five days a week, and I said, if you want your kid to be you know, a junior world champion at 15, 16, this isn't the place for you. Encourage him to come once or twice a week and go and play baseball, basketball, whatever. Um, however, uh, early specialization, uh, we know the downfalls, you know, the burnout and the lose interest and whatnot, but um, it, it, it's also consistent with what we're, what we talk about, you know, and getting, reaching that level of expertise. So if I'm making sense here, Ideally, like you said, they're few and far between. They're few and far between these kids that can really buckle down and, and stay committed that long. Mm -hmm. Ideally, that would be the way to go, right? Uh, potentially, I guess. Like I, I know, of, I know that. Like we, we, we only recently did a little episode on this. It'll be released this week, so anybody who's watching the video will be already out. But we, we had a long discussion with John Mackey about this, the whole idea of early specialization and the ten thousand hour rule. Um, but yeah, it goes back to this idea of generally people don't end up becoming uh, at a high level when it comes to senior age, and would that be right? That's kind of the general thinking behind that. So yeah, I mean, the, the big thing is if we take the issue of time, right? If time is unlimited and you have a student in front of you, what will you spend your time on? So, you know, you're going to spend your time on what you kind of feel is best for their long-term development. But once you introduce that, say, at 40, perhaps at 13 or 14 years of age, that, okay, well, but there's selections now. And so you have to win this tournament to be eligible for selection. Then you have to, once you're selected, attend training at this level. Once you're doing that, then your performance at the championships is now judged and measured and weighed. And then you have to go to this level. And it becomes a kind of a constant repeating thing. So now the prior priority isn't, well, what's best for your long-term development? The priority is, what is going to give us the most return on our time investment now in terms of results in the ring in the short to medium term. And I think that changes everything. So it's, I think it's more about the phases. It's like, how long do you spend in each time? And it should probably be not quite a pyramid, but certainly something like a, you know, a truncated cone or something where um, you want to spend a lot of time in the discovery phases and you want to do that spread across a range of sports and activities. I think, where you're going to learn an awful lot of skills because when we start, we don't know if that six-year-old is going to be, you know, a 25-year-old martial artist or a 25-year-old, you know, uh, platform diver. You know, 
they, they could go any way. But we'd like that at 25 years of age, they still would look back at their time spent with us and say, yeah, that was worthwhile. So I think for me, it's like moving them too quickly through the phases, I think is the problem. That early specialization, it's not about maybe even if they were spending the time, but they're spending the time diversified across a range of activities and sports. I think the mistake is thinking that you have to get, you know, for mastery within a sport, you have to spend this huge amount of time early within one sport. But everything we do in life impacts everything else. So, you know, if, if, if I have a, and I do, I have a five-year-old, and if he, he spent, you know, a good portion of last year going to dance classes, uh, hip-hop, because it's just what he wanted to do. Now he wants to punch the heads out of people, but he's going to start maybe doing a little bit of that in September. But he also wants to kick a ball. He also wants to play in a slide and a swing. It's like, great, perfect, do all that stuff. Um, I have a 14-year-old, and I'm lucky if I can get him away from the PlayStation long enough to hit a few pads or do something like that. So that's, that's his journey. You know, it's a little bit different. So I'm, I'm definitely thinking that, you know, uh, rather than it being about a specific number of hours or an early investment in a sport, uh, you know, if you're thinking in terms of spending your time, you want, you know, you're one of those parents who would like to see their children be successful, and you'd like to see yourself as doing what's necessary to support that. It really is a case of, look, there's a whole wide range of skills out there that they might need. And if it's enjoyable for them to explore those skills, give them the time to do that. And then nature will take care of itself, their interests, their passions, the way the coaches react to them, the, the way their friends have oriented themselves, you know, into different things, where their competence, you know, where they're feeling competent and challenged and confident, that's where they're going to go. Right. And, you know, I do the same with my kids that throw bunch of shit at the wall and see what sticks, you know, and, and that's kind of my strategy there. I, I just felt when we were talking earlier about, it almost seems like the narrative is now we're discouraging kids from from early specialization. Whereas if you have a kid that, that is wholly, you know, motivated and passionate and, and they want to do that, I don't know, I, I, again, it just seems a little bit of a disconnect there. I see the detriment, I see the, the problems with it and the burnout and all the psychological issues. But um, again, if we're looking at things from an accumulation of time and experience, um, then I don't know, I, I'm not quite, I'm not quite as um, convinced that it, sure. it's always a bad thing. That's, that's what yeah, but, but if, if a child wants to do that themselves, like that, by all means, like it should be what what they enjoy. But it, it's, I think, it's the important thing is here of a parent putting them into martial arts and, and only having them train in six times a week because they want them to become a champion. I think, I think that's what the key is. But yeah. if, it, if a child is enjoying something because it's what they love and they they love going to see their friends and all that, I don't see any harm in, in no. allowing them to to train as often as they like. No, and we all recognise, you know, the parents that, that are, you know, living vicariously through their kids or whatever, um, yeah. and pushing their kids into the sport. And, uh, I don't have any further experience in this, but like I've 21 years and I haven't had one of them yet. That's, you know, the, the ones, the early investors that, you know, that stick with it and come through and go to senior and grow up and get married oh. and they're still involved. I haven't had one yet. So one of these days, someone will come along who does that and shock the pants off me. You know, it's mm -hmm. going to happen. Just, you know, there has to be someone who's going to do that. Um, but so far, none of those. None of those. But, uh, so as the adults in the room, we're just kind of trying to guide them and make, make uh, you know, prospectively make the right decision for them, I guess. So even if they, you know, that, that's where this encouragement is coming from to diversify. This yeah. 
but it's also in what we offer. Like, I mean, you know, is it physically possible for someone to come to Richie and say, listen, I'd like to train six times a week, Richie. You know, is that something Richie facilitates? And for me, the answer is no, I don't actually facilitate that. It's not possible. You don't get to do that, you know, but you know, if you go to a gym, a club or an environment where that is possible, fair enough. What we would see in Ireland, I think more so is like, you know, it, particularly in the cities where it's like, oh, well, I could go there on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I can go there on a Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, you know, and, and they do it that way. And, you know, if that's what they do and that's what the, the child wants to do, as you said, I wouldn't be um, screaming at them. We tend to see it actually more from the point of view of the, uh, the Gaelic games and, uh, and football where the, the various leagues don't manage their schedules very well and the kids have training and, uh, and matches almost overlapping. So they could have two trainings one day, two matches another day, a training and a match on another day, and it could all happen in the same week and, you know, at different age groups and levels. Like that's where we would fear for burnout, where they enjoy the sport, but eventually at some point in the season, the calendar becomes too much for them and they're asked to perform uh, too much. And I don't think there's a fear of that in the martial arts. There's no uh, martial arts coach that I've come across ever who has, you know, multiple competitions a week for any prolonged period of the season um, or, or that major, uh, a, a, you know, a, a performance-oriented kind of program. I, I just haven't seen that yet. Yeah, that, that's, in, that's interesting. Um, slightly off topic again, how, how do you, as coaches, because we're all human beings, how do you temper your kind of the propensity to, to have be uh, favoritism in class? Richie, where you go? What do they call it? I think the, the, the Matthew effect or whatever. And I've, I've, I've seen this, you know, just that little bit. It's well documented, you know, just that little bit of extra attention. The extra five minutes on the pads here, the, the extra the attention is going, and it, and it snowballs. So yeah. I'm always uh, reminding myself of that. But again, I'm, I'm human, and I, and I, I have my favorites. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and you know, I think it's natural for a coach when you're putting in so much of yourself and your time and your effort into it, and you you go there, and, and there's certain athletes and students who are, who are who have that attitude and that mindset, and they're almost giving it back. I think it's natural to kind of to, to put a little bit more effort into those guys and um, to give them a little bit more um, of your time because, as we said, especially for us, it might be a lot of people are, are there and they don't want to be there. Uh, and, of course, we have a duty to, to give them as much as anybody else. But I, I guess when people come there with, with a, a good attitude and, and they're willing to learn, I think it's, it's just natural for coaches to maybe help them a little bit more. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a cop out, and it's perfectly natural to, you know, again, maybe have have your favourites, but um, wouldn't that be a sign of a, a better coach? You know, I always use the analogy of a teacher. If if all your kids came and brought you an apple every day and sat in the front and, and answered every question and did their homework right, it'd be easiest job in the world. Uh, we have that over here. You know, the difference in this, especially the American school system. You know, you have private schools and all your public schools and whatnot. You know, credit to these teachers who work in these with problem kids and yeah and so, so using that kind of analogy uh, i always try and remind myself it's the it's the more uncoachable kids and the, the more of the the challenging pupils and students that i should really be throwing my throwing my time into a bit more definitely and i you know what I, I think it's important as well to have a little bit of a, a system around you and ha have these assistant coaches i think that's where it comes in because you can't do it all yourself like you can't, mm -hmm. you can't go and teach an hour, instruct the class, coach the class, give feedback, and then go around and give everybody a little bit of your time. Then as well, this is 
virtually impossible. So I think having that support structure and having people around where you have a good system of everybody gets an attention and everybody is involved. And I think that that's kind of uh, more important, I guess, than, than focusing on any particular individuals. Any well, question? Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. I was interrupting you. Uh, are you constantly kind of grooming, uh, grooming is maybe the wrong word, uh, are you constantly kind of developing um, assistant coaches and whatnot and identify, yeah. identifying these kind of leaders within the group? Definitely. Like like for me, my, my school is pretty young and new, but uh, at the moment, like we our, our black belts are, not, are now involved in coaching and they all have a class that they turn up to each week and they're actively assistants with those groups and, and they're involved with the tournaments and the young kids and I think it's very important and, and they love it as well. They, they love getting that little bit of, of um, leadership and, and a, a little bit of permission to, to go and explore for themselves and maybe, you know, take on a class, maybe do a warm up here and there and things like that. And I think they, they take a lot from it and they enjoy it a lot. I think that's, um, that's one of the most important things in, a, in, a, in an academy or a club structure. I think you can't do it all by yourself. It's, it's impossible. So anybody, I, I goes back to kind of like ego again. And I, I find this myself that sometimes I, I, I'm struggling to kind of let go of the reins a little bit and leave these people kind of like almost learn in the deep end as such. And you know, they're going to make mistakes, but that's just part of it. And, and sometimes I, I can I'm be a, uh, it's something that I need to work on definitely of just kind of leaving the reins go a little bit to, to allow these people to, to learn and, and to adjust. But yeah, I think that's a, a massive, massive part of, of any structure or club. I think. Yeah, I certainly try and encourage that. You know, if I'm on the mat with, with, with 10, 10 of the students or athletes, uh, I'll openly invite them to be my 10 assistant coaches, you know. Mm. And I know in a lot of more traditional schools, I want to be almost blasphemous to. To you know, talk back to the coach or add your own, add your own input. So um, we, we're definitely trying to make this like a collaborative experience. Um, back more to the, the the coaching side of things. How would you typically um, uh, debrief and and set up a class like this, the the start and the end of your classes? Is there do you have a strategy for that? Or? Yeah, Adrian, I think yeah, you you have a, a good little system for your evaluations and things like that. Especially what you've done in squads, I think is uh, is quite good. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we will do um, when we start, when we start, it, it's, it's almost like a, a more formal presentation in some ways. We will start with the, here's what we want out of today. So before we start the training session, we'll explain what's in the training session and what we want out of the training session. So we'll know we've had a good session if by the end of the session we've done X, Y, Z. Um, and I think I remember this from like going to training sessions with instructors and you don't know what's ahead of you. And so you don't really know how to manage your energy or how to you know there's something always in the back of your mind about what comes next you can't actually just immerse yourself in the task so I always kind of felt like once you know what's ahead of you okay there's a good and a bad side to it and sometimes you'll need to surprise people but you can kind of yeah picture it and you can throw yourself into it and not worry about what comes next and then at the end of the session a couple of things we will usually debrief but we'll also it's an opportunity to check for learning so you know, did you actually get across what you wanted to get across? Did people learn, you know, at least in the short term, what it was you hoped that they would learn? And also it's a chance for, you know, you can get feedback as a coach through that. So if they didn't learn what you expected them to learn, well, there's a message in you. I didn't, you, I didn't communicate it well. I pitched it at the wrong level. Something, something went wrong. Equally, they could just tell you, uh, listen, um, I, I still don't get that thing or, you know, and, all feedback from that point of view is, is good feedback to have. But if, 
from a cognitive perspective, people leaving the session know they have a name for what they learned. They have a name for what they got better at. They, they're aware that we practiced this, we got better at this, we weren't so good at the beginning, we were better at the end. You know, you're walking out of there knowing what you were good at rather than what you messed up. So even if you had two or three things you were corrected on during the session, if you walk out of a session knowing I got better at this, well then you're going home on a hike because you know, you, you're going out of there feeling you got better because you spent the time there. I think that's what we want every session, isn't it? You know, that you walk, people walk out of the session feeling like they got better because they were in the session. Yeah, I, I do like that, the, the clear goals. Uh, I, I tend to sometimes change things on the fly and whatnot. And with my accent over here, they, they often are a little misunderstood too, but I, I tell them a lot, you know, if, if one person doesn't understand what we're doing here, you, you fucked up. And if more than one person doesn't understand, then I fucked up. So um, I'm yeah. constantly... I'm constantly reiterating and trying to simplify what I'm saying. Yeah, definitely. It's a hard balancing act, this whole coaching gig, isn't it? It, it, it really is. It's, it's the biggest challenge. I, I love it, but the more I get into it, the more I feel I'll never get It's like a mountain. Mm. So many rabbit holes, yeah. I was just saying the art and science of it. I ended up on mute somehow. I thought my headphones died or something. Uh, no, I think somehow we put, we ended up putting everyone on mute. All I was saying, and that was the art and science of it. Yeah, it's, it's not a straightforward game. Mm, yeah, that's tricky. Great chat, lads. Certainly, enjoying that. Mm, thanks for your time, Scott. It's been a great chat. I, I've uh, enjoyed delving into some topics there and made a few mental notes of some things that I, I'd like to employ on our own side as well. So, yeah. Fantastic. Oh, definitely me. I, I got a lot out of, out of this too. What I'm finding is that I don't, I'm always going down these different avenues and stuff, so I never ever stay on topic, but I'll try and do better with that in future. That's good. That's good. It means we're all learning. We'll definitely right. be staying in touch on the L Facebook and Instagram and all those kind of things. Yeah, and I'm, I'm definitely going to inspire me to up my game in, in terms of, I, I've been kind of having a little bit of a pity party the last, the last few weeks because we've only been open three, four months and we're forced to shut down. Um, again, no, no help and whatever. It's, it's, uh, it's a challenge for everyone. Everyone, there's a lot more, a lot of people are worse off than us. But, um, but uh, yeah, kudos to you. You guys are just pumping it out each and every day. That was busy. How, how many? Um, typically, how many uh, downloads or listeners do you get to your podcast? Uh, we actually haven't tracked that really it's just it's basically just going on YouTube we have to get a bit better we're using Anchor alright on our um, podcast for Spotify and things but uh, we have to get a bit more active on that I need to, um, to pull the mp3 clips off and, and get them a bit more active I think uh, but generally we, we have a few hundred views on each um, YouTube video so yeah we're getting some good feedback anyway and some people are listening yeah that's it that's a builder for us as well. We, we spent, as I said, all of last year on the other platforms in terms of Instagram, Facebook. And, you know, this gives us a whole different medium to tackle concepts that we couldn't through the kind of the short form videos and the short form content that you can put on Facebook and, and Instagram. So, yeah, great little experiment for us now. And this was the perfect opportunity to really crank it up. Yeah, I do like your, again, Taekwondo's not my wheelhouse at all, but enjoy your sparring breakdowns and stuff. And, uh it's really valuable you'll at least have two more listeners myself and my mother <laughs> <laughs> super super appreciate that brilliant uh, so um, 
is there anywhere where people can find out a little bit more or get in contact with you, Scott, if they if they, if they want to get involved and, and oh, maybe uh, stop? Well, I say, Richie, you're um, one of the guests on my own podcast, which I uh, haven't even got around to finalizing the name yet. But uh, I am based in Milwaukee. Our new MMA gym is Primal MKE. That's the airport code for Milwaukee. So PrimalMilwaukee.com. And uh, I do a bit of my own writing and uh, put some articles and stuff on there as well. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm way behind you guys. But I'm, don't sleep on me. I'm trying to catch up. <laughs> now there's some good stuff there as nice. well might um, link up your um, podcast on the talent equation I think there was some very valuable stuff for martial arts there as well so we link that up for anybody who wants to, to go a little bit deeper okay thank you and I'll be definitely back to uh, pick your brains and uh, I appreciate your time absolutely Excellent. thanks so much I appreciate it alright right take care okay thanks a lot bye